Hello, and welcome to Methods, an exploration in guided prayer and meditation. My name's Jory, and up to now we've been exclusively releasing guided prayers and meditations. But we're going to start doing things a little differently by inviting guests on that may have something to say to us to inform the way we approach our practices, and by extension, how we approach life. This segment is going to be called Being With, after the thought of Martin Heidegger, who saw that we are essentially social beings, and that means that our entire way of being in the world is oriented by relationship with others, and anything less is inauthentic. Or as a poet once said, no man is an entire island of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. These short segments are going to consist of a conversation, followed by a separate episode with that guest leading us through their preferred method of prayer, meditation, or however they ground and center themselves. Today we talk with Carl McCullman. Carl is a contemplative writer, speaker, teacher, soul friend, and storyteller. He's a co-host for the podcast Encountering Silence, of which I'm a dedicated listener. He's also the author of numerous books, including The Big Book of Christian Mysticism, Answering the Contemplative Call, An Invitation to Celtic Wisdom, and Unteachable Lessons. Carl McCullman, welcome to Methods. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself for people that may not be familiar with you or your work. What's your, your religious background? Where do you come from? Well, I was, uh, I, I come from Virginia. I lived in Hampton, Virginia as a child, then went to school at James Madison in Harrisonburg, Virginia, graduate school at George Mason in uh, Fairfax, Virginia. So Virginia's kind of in my blood. Uh, my parents were Lutherans, so my early kind of religious education formation was in the Lutheran world. Then when I was a teenager, I had a kind of a spiritual awakening kind of encounter with the sacred when I was at a church camp. But the Lutherans really, at least back in the 1970s, they really didn't know what to do with that kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, religious experience. They had no language for that. And so I began to associate with Pentecostal and charismatic Christians, spent some time in that world, but really kind of bumped into some theological issues for me. And so that led to kind of a disillusionment when I was in college. I basically you know, lived a secular life, although I was still reading people like Evelyn Underhill and um, you know, C.S. Lewis, some of the you know, more popular folks, as well as beginning to explore non-Christian spirituality like uh, Yogananda, um, Alan Watts, Carlos Castaneda, those kinds of folks. Eventually in graduate school, I found my way to the Episcopal Church and I spent uh, about a decade or so as an Episcopalian. Uh, it was there that I really became familiar with contemplative practice. I was living in the D.C. area and started uh, taking classes at the Shalem Institute uh, in, in Washington, D.C. at the time. And then eventually my work took me to the south. I came to Atlanta, and then I went to Sewanee, Tennessee, lived there for several years. And while I was in Sewanee, I began to explore really some forms of alternative spirituality, paganism, Wicca, Druidism, you know, goddess spirituality, shamanism, those kinds of things. And that became kind of a chapter of my life. Eventually, though, I, I found that that really didn't, didn't serve my own kind of spiritual growth the way that contemplative and mystical Christianity did. So eventually I found my way back into the church. And at that point, I was living in Atlanta. I'd gotten married, moved to Atlanta. 
And thanks to the Trappist monks here in Georgia, I really felt drawn to become a Roman Catholic. So in, um, in 2005 now, almost 15 years ago now, I entered the Catholic Church. My wife and my daughter did at the same time. And so now I'm, I'm still a practicing Catholic layperson, but still very much involved in monastic uh, spirituality from a layperson's perspective, as well as contemplative spirituality. So I've written several books. I have a blog. I co-host a podcast. And, um, and then I'm a Centering Prayer instructor, so you know I'm involved in the Centering Prayer Contemplative Outreach Movement. And I still maintain ties with a number of the Shalem folks as well. So, so that's it in a nutshell. Wow, yeah. So that's a um, pretty standard, uh, common uh, route of spirituality that I've seen. Um, <laughs> I, I did, and I didn't mention that Buddhism, you know, kind of danced in there a little too. I, you know, done a number of the weekends through the Shambhala program, and you know, sat at Shambhala, sat at another sangha here in Atlanta. So, um, you know, I think like so many Christians who are drawn to contemplative Christianity, we feel so much affinity with with the Dharma. You know, certainly I do. So, so that's another piece of the puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's. I mean, I'm a I'm a listener of your your podcast, Encountering Silence, um, and and I did just purchase and read your book, uh, Unteachable Lessons, and I I marked a couple of parts that stood out to me because I thought it was super fascinating how you go from you had went from um, like a Pentecostal or Lutheran kind of upbringing and that kind of broad uh, spirituality, even more open to, you know, paganism, which is, you know, completely decentralized, really. And then now you've moved to Roman Catholic, which is pretty, you know, uh, supremely centralized in a way. So, um, so what, what do you think made, made that move happen? It kind of spoke to my experience because I also, um, grew up in sort of like a, well, I grew up in like a country Methodist uh, congregation. And then I started exploring um, the more pagan religions and Wicca. And yeah, and and it, uh, it was about that time that my um, parents had joined a kind of like fundamentalist type church. And so that kind of got beat out of me figuratively. Um, but yeah, I just was curious if you had taken any boon or any um, goodness from that tradition, even though you're not technically a part of it anymore, into your, your spirituality now? Well, um, yeah, le- let me address the question of, you know, is, is the Catholic Church centralized versus pagan spirituality, which you're right, is supremely decentralized. And certainly Catholicism as a historical structure has this very kind of patriarchal, very hierarchical system of governance. But there's also been a long tradition of Catholics who who struggle with that and who question it, who interrogate it. Uh, so I kind of fall more in that tradition. To put it simplistically, you can look at a Pope Benedict or a Pope Francis. Pope Benedict might represent that more conservative, kind of very comfortable with with the centralized authority of the church. Pope Francis represents uh, the kind of approach that really emphasizes the local church and the work that's being done on on the local level and maybe not so much of an emphasis on the hierarchical structure. So, um, you know, there are many traditions within Catholicism where 
there's been a lot of very fruitful and positive interreligious dialogue. You think of people like Bede Griffiths, uh, Thomas Merton, Abhishek Tananda, Sarah Grant, uh, Mary Margaret Funk, you know, certainly those kinds of Catholics, I am very much in alignment with the kind of work that they've done. And, and I realize that there are a lot of other Catholics out there who maybe are uncomfortable with interfaith or interreligious dialogue. But, you know, even if you look at the documents of Vatican II or the documents of the, uh, the Ponti- I think it's the Pontifical Institute for Interreligious Dialogue, they're very, very positive and very open that kind of, um, you know, fruitful interchange. So, um, so that's the world in which I inhabit. And certainly, you know, I was drawn to Catholicism because of that long, that long tradition of contemplative spirituality. It goes all the way back to the desert mothers and fathers, mm-hmm. down through the Benedictine tradition, the Cistercian Trappist tradition, up to the present day. And then, then of course, the Jesuits, the Ignatian uh, world where I am um, I'm I'm currently plugged in there because I I work part time for a Jesuit parish here in Georgia. Uh, now, did paganism? Did I bring any boons uh, into my decision to enter the Catholic Church? Well, certainly, you know, my years as a pagan, you know, were formative for me, uh, helped to make me the kind of person I am today, and certainly paganism gave me a very strong appreciation for the earth, for the body, for uh, a spirituality that is integral rather than dualistic. You know, I think I think the Catholic world, and it's not unique to Catholicism, but in the Catholic world, you can find a very dualistic spirituality where the body is somehow suspect, seen as somehow less than the spirit. Mm-hmm. But um, but that's certainly not what, what, what most pagans espouse. And as I've come to learn, many, many Catholics also have a more integral spirituality, including the Benedictine tradition and the Ignatian tradition, which I'm plugged into. So, um, so there is, I would say that, that, that my experience as a pagan paradoxically helped me to maybe be a healthier Catholic than I might have otherwise. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I know a lot of people who grew up Catholic and they were wounded by the church and they want nothing to do with the church now. And, and, and I understand that and I respect that. I'm sorry that they were so wounded, but um, but I also, you know, if, if they were, would want to talk to me, I would certainly say there's probably more to the Catholic Church than what you experienced as a youth. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and the reasons why I'm a Catholic are probably a lot different from the reasons why many people leave the Catholic Church or struggle with the Catholic Church. Right. So, you know. Yeah, when I was growing up... Um, Catholics were were the bad guys, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. At least in the uh, in the non denominational church or in the Methodist church, um, we were we were kind of taught to be uh, very wary of of Catholics and and their you know rituals and seances and so forth. And <laughs> I don't know any Catholics who perform seances, but but a lot of people think Catholics worship Mary. Yep. yep. Uh, they, they, they worship the saints. Um, they, you know, they, they indulge in works righteousness. They think, you know, that you have to earn your way into heaven. I mean, I, I, I learned all of that growing up in Virginia, you know, certainly during, you know, the Lutherans, you know, there was definitely some anti-Catholicism in the Lutheran world. But once I got into the Pentecostal charismatic world, I saw it in spades. And, um, you know, and, and I mean, I think there is still a lot of anti-Catholic bias, some of which maybe is well-founded. You know, the, 
the bishops in the last few years have certainly, you know, all, allied themselves with, you know, very conservative Republican politics. And, and I think that may not be in the best interest of the church. Mm. But, um, but again, the Catholics aren't the only ones that are doing that. You know, you see that in the evangelical world as well. So, um, you know, so it's, so it's a very complex issue. And, you know, I remember one of the first editors I worked with, you know, I was working on my book that eventually came to be known as Embracing Jesus and the Goddess. And in the book, I, I, was, I was arguing a lot with fundamentalist Christians. And my editor told me to take all that stuff out. And I said, why? And he said, they're not going to read this book, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he said, you know, you've got to keep in mind there are many different Christianities. Mm -hmm. it, was, it, was, it was such a wonderful insight, which now I just take so for granted. And even within one church, the Methodist church, the Catholic church, the, um, the Episcopal church, you know, you find many different expressions, many different theologies, many different spiritualities. And so it's, it's really dangerous. And this is one of the points I make, you know, back to my book, Unteachable Lessons, that it's always dangerous to paint too broad of a brush whenever you're talking about any religious group. Yeah. You know, so, um, you know, as, in, in the book I talk about, and it really was based on a specific conversation I had with somebody a few years ago, who they, they heard I was coming to their community to lead a retreat. They Googled me. They saw that I had written all these pagan books. And they were frightened. You know, this was a very devout Catholic person, and she had did not have any experience with interreligious dialogue or with people who had actually, you know, been practitioners of other faith traditions, and so so she was she was a little scared of me. But but for credit, she did come to the retreat. She did talk to me. We we had a wonderful dialogue, and um, you know, and I, I I appreciate when people are willing to do that, kind of step outside their comfort zone, and and try to engage with them. Um, you know, with something that may be beyond their their limited experience. Because let's be real, we all have limited experiences. Even if you're somebody who's a world traveler and has, you know, is very well read, you've got, you know, five PhDs or whatever, your experience is still not the full experience. Mm -hmm. And so it's always, we, we, if we want to grow spiritually, we have to get into the habit of listening to other people and being engaged with them. So. Yeah, and it'll it'll amaze you too if you if you actually do open up enough to listen, and as as I've uh, kind of grown out of the the more cloistered um, spirituality of my youth, uh, I have learned to appreciate so much of the Catholic tradition that was forbidden to me for so many years, and and the um, the various you know, saints and, and mystics and so on that are in that tradition. And there's so much wealth in that, uh, in that stream of, of wisdom. Yeah. Claustrophobic, I guess, maybe yeah, would be a good yeah. word. Um, well, again, narrow, you know, so narrow. Many us, yeah. So many of us struggle with, and it, and it goes back to what I said, you know, it, it's our experience. You know, I think there are, are many, many people who, um, you know, they, they go through life, they're 40 or 50, 60 years old, whatever, and their experience remains very narrow. They've never traveled much, they haven't read much, you know, they got a business degree and, you know, and then they've been working the rest of their life. And, you know, and the reality is, is that the world is so much bigger than what, what we know. And that's why, you know, it's, it's interesting, St. Benedict was such a strong proponent of humility. And I think humility is absolutely necessary for spiritual growth. But it's it's also necessary just for 
functioning in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, think of how our political discourse in the United States would be different today if, if everybody would take humility more seriously. But we don't, you know, we, we, we watch, you know, Fox News or CNN to see who's going to be the most aggressive and who's going to shout the loudest. Yep, and, and that's who gets the know, most attention. Absolutely, you know, and so, um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a systemic problem and it, and it transcends our political divisions. And so, you know, that's where I think the spiritual life is, is so vital and so necessary. Now, the spiritual life being what it is, is most practitioners and most adherents of contemplative spirituality, we're not going to be out there doing that kind of aggressive marketing. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so we have to just trust that, that people will find their way to the quiet corners of the cloisters, of the churches, of the retreat centers, of the wilderness places where people can get in touch with silence and get in touch with them, with an alternative way of being and thinking and doing compared to what main, our mainstream culture dishes out. So. Yeah. Yeah, so you you run your podcast called Encountering Silence, and in, in your book, uh, I want to read a, a quote. You say, um, silence is the screen on which the film of our lives is projected, and silence more than anything else within us is the doorway to the presence of God. So unpack that a little bit for me, because it's, it's a short statement, but there's a lot in there. So w- what do you mean by silence being the doorway to the presence of God? You know, this again, that, that little passage that you read is very much the fruit of my, um, I guess, my experience with contemplative or centering prayer. That really, you know, kind of the, the purpose behind the Christian practice of, of centering prayer or silent prayer is to learn to find the silence that's already in our hearts, that's already in our minds. A lot of people, critics of centered prayer will say it's it's a prayer that's designed to empty the mind. And I don't think that's true. I don't think it's possible to empty the human mind. I think the, the, the mind generates thought just like the heart beats. Okay, you can slow down your heartbeat with relaxation, deep breathing, that kind of thing, but your heart never stops. If your heart stops, it's a problem. It's the same thing with, with the mind. You know, a silent prayer practice, what it really does is it, it's, it slows down kind of the dynamics of thought. And thought means not only cognitive thought, you know, the words in our mind, but also feelings, daydreams, and images, imagination, all of that kind of stuff that is normally our interior lives. And so entering into silent prayer is really an invitation to recognize that there is more to who we are than to the stuff that our mind and hearts generate. The, the thinking, the words, the images, the daydreams, et cetera, the feelings, all of that. And so what, you know, it, it, the cloud of unknowing, a great uh, 14th century manual of contemplation, the author um, suggests that looking for silence is kind of like looking over the shoulder of somebody who's in your face and talking to you. And it's such a wonderful image. And so, you know, so, we, we've got, you know, what the, the Buddhists call the monkey mind. You know, we've, we've, I, I think Teresa of Avila calls it the wild horses of the mind, you know, this kind of dynamic energy that is our stream of consciousness. But then beyond that is this resplendent silence, this deep presence. And the reality is, is that, you know, there's a strong biblical warrant for, for, 
attending the silence as a way of making ourselves available to God. The verse that everyone knows, Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. But there's also from Psalm 62, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. There's um, Habakkuk, uh, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. Especially read that through the New Testament kind of idea that the human body is the temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So the Holy Spirit is in the temple of our hearts, and we are called to be silent before that divine presence within us. Mm-hmm. And so, and then the tradition picks this up. I think it's um, Meister Eckhart who says, nothing resembles God so much as silence. It was um, uh, Thomas Keating who said silence is God's first language, everything else is a poor translation. And so, you know, so there's just this continual kind of pointing back that that what silence does is it doesn't empty us, but it just brings us into the divine presence that's already there, but we spend most of our lives distracted from it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so the prayer of, of silence, the prayer of, of centering or contemplation is a prayer that uh, of learning to just undistract ourselves and and just make ourselves available to that divine presence that's already there. Now, you know, again, back to, you know, we we were we, you know, we were talking about, you know, the challenges of of being involved in in the church a few minutes ago. I mean, one of the challenges I think that many Christians face today, or many people who grew up in a Christian context, is that there certainly is a theology within Christianity that stresses separation. Mm-hmm. This idea that that God is somehow up in heaven and we are down, it's like the, the, the Catholic prayer of the Salve Regina, we are mourning and weeping in this valley of tears, you know, this, this, this idea of separation. But, um, but that's really, you know, that's kind of later, a later development in the history of Christian theology and spirituality. Um, I think it was Thomas Keating who said it so beautifully. He said, you know, the original sin is the idea that we're separate from God. That that idea was the fundamental mistake. The word sin just means mistake. You know, the fundamental mistake that we have made to, you know, to, to create this kind, of, this kind of suffering that then can lead to us saying no to love and, and behaving in ways that are actually, you know, opposed to love and opposed to, to, to the kind of, you know, ethical and moral mandate that, that Jesus' teachings exemplify. So, um, you know, so, so going back to that kind of, again, that kind of New Testament idea that we are actually one with God. Jesus said, abide in me as I abide in you. You know, the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We are called to be partakers of the divine nature. Again and again and again, there's this message of coherence, of divine indwelling, divine presence. The mystics, you know, used even bolder language and said, union with God, you know, communion with God, mm-hmm. that, that that is our kind of our, our sacred birthright. And then, um, but then we've lost it. We've lost it for a variety of reasons, some theological, some cultural, historical. And so people who really want to ex- engage into kind of a contemplative practice within a Christian context, paradoxically, one of the things we have to do is unlearn bad theology to really make ourselves available available for the promise of of contemplative spirituality. Sorry, um, 
got a little distracted. My dog was running around for a minute there. <laughs> That's all right. Um, so I, I rest my case. We're all distracted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I've been to a few different retreats and been to seminars from you know Shalem and from the Center for Action and Contemplation and everything. And one thing that I've noticed is, and maybe you can in, shed some light on this, is why is contemplative Christianity, whether it's, you know, Catholic-based or, or, or otherwise, why is it so white? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. It's something we struggle with. Uh, when I say we, I'm including Kevin and Cassidy, but also other friends as well. Um, you know, I think part of that is just just the racism in our culture and the fact that, you know, that white Christians have had access to to more historical resources, maybe more, um, you know, more ancient texts, uh, have had the opportunity to participate in uh, in secondary educational resources that are available. The, you know, the white community has certainly, you know, when I think about in the 1960s, the whole kind of embracing of Eastern spirituality of, of Buddhism and Hinduism, you know, and I think that that really kind of primed the pump for the contemplative revival, at least among the laity. You know, so there's a lot of things going on there. Now, the, I, there's 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 good news, bad news, and and the bad news is that you know Christianity in America continues to be a very segregated phenomenon, and that certainly has affected the contemplative expression within Christianity. But having said that, there are some amazing. Uh, contemplatives of color who are are doing doing wonderful work and are you know really partnering with the white contemplatives to to try to you know foster a contemplative community that is really more truly inclusive and and looks more like America as a whole looks. I mean here in Atlanta we have um, we have Loretta Coleman Brown and we have Catherine Meeks. Or to, you know, just two people. You know, I know several others, but they haven't published. So I, I'm not going to, you know, inflict their names on the world. But you know, it's just a number of folks who are um, are really, really doing wonderful work. You know, to to not only just support people of color who are embracing contemplation, but then also you know, working with the white community, the white contemplative community as well. Uh, looking beyond the Atlanta area, you have. Um, you have Barbara Holmes, who, of course, now teaches with the Center for Action and Contemplation, who's really done some wonderful work. Therese Taylor Stinson, and both Barbara and Therese, as well as Loretta, have all been guests on Encountering Silence. So this is an issue that we certainly take seriously. Um, and of course, the the grandfather of contemplatives of culture uh, of color, I'm sorry, of contemplatives of color, is Howard Thurman. Mm -hmm. And you know, he, I, you know, I, if if this were a non-racist society, he would be as well known as Thomas Merton. And, you know, I'm convinced just, just on a literary level, he, he is such a brilliant writer, a brilliant stylist. His, his recordings, you know, fortunately he lived into the early 80s, so there are a lot of recordings of his sermons. You know, he comes out of the, the, the Black Baptist tradition and, and he preaches with all the fire that you would expect of a traditional, you know, Baptist preacher from Florida. But then he pivots and he brings his voice down into a whisper and invites 
invites his congregation into that contemplative moment. And it's just, it's truly art, you know, just listening to him preach. is just a, an amazingly nurturing experience. So, so, you know, I think that's, that's, we all have a lot of work to do, you know, it's just, whether it's this historical work of making sure that, that people like Howard Thurman get more exposure. And then also just, you know, I think every individual contemplative has to, has to ask him or herself, you know, Am I am I content to just be in in fellowship with people who look like me, or am I going to make the effort to try to connect with connect with with people from different backgrounds as well? I think we all we all have to be asking that question. You know, another issue. I mean, residual racism in the church. You know, a lot of people. You know, they don't think of Saint Augustine as an African. Saint Augustine was an African. You know, one of the great fathers of the church. He was an African. Um, there was, was an icon that was circulating around um, around the internet a while back, an icon of Saint Nicholas, and I can't remember where he was from. You know, he may be from Turkey or he may be from Africa, but he was depicted in this icon as a person of color. You know, very much with 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 dark skin, and I and I think we need we need more. Um, you know, so much for Santa Claus being the jolly white man. You know, <laughs> we need we need more um, more efforts to reclaim. The diversity that has already been part of church history, but that in many ways got lost by centuries of kind of Eurocentric culture. So, so there's a lot of work there to be done. But, but the good news is, is there are people out there who are doing the work. Yeah, and I think it's important too to note that when we do experience someone, um, maybe from a different culture or different background, that uh, we don't retain, there's, there's a lot of um, post-evangelicals in the contemplative movement right now, and I think uh, the tendency is to, when you experience someone from a different background, um, there's still this tendency to want to evangelize them into the contemplative movement. Um, well, yes, and this is something that, that both Therese and Barbara spoke with on Encountering Silence. That you know that that white contemplatives need to understand that contemplatives of color may not do contemplation the same way we do. Right. And and that was an important learning experience for me, just to have those conversations. You know, and 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 some of that again is cultural. It it may have to do with 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 religious culture, but also with with the you know the dynamics of of privilege in our society of of racism and racial violence all of that Therese Taylor Stinson talks about how when she became a spiritual director and providing spiritual direction to people of color and finding that for many of the people that she worked with they saw silence almost in terms of punishment mm-hmm. and so the idea of entering into silence to find god was just kind of a non-starter and so so it really, you know, and, and Therese was a Shalem graduate, so she certainly, you know, came out of that that culture, you know, Gerald May and Tilden Edwards and, you know, again, these, you know, educated white Americans and their kind of approach to things. And so, but it was a real invitation for her to, you know, to just be more, you know, more faithful to her experiences as a, an African-American woman, a woman of color, and to say, yeah, I don't just have to do contemplation the way these people say I should. And, and that, that's an important lesson for all of us, and, and probably all of us across the board. And, and hopefully in a world where a true post-racist world will just have many, many different ways for people to access that, you know, that divine presence within. 
silence is not the only way. I mean, silence is certainly my way. And, and I love my spirituality that, that is so anchored in silence. But for others, it may be music, it may be art, it may be, you know, ministry, social justice work, um, you know, embodied prayer like walking the labyrinth, you know, and the list goes on and on. And so, you know, that's really what we need is we need a, a contemplative community that embraces the many, many different ways we can be contemplative. Yeah. And, and then, then allows each person, regardless of your, you know, your race or your gender or your sexual orientation or your education level. I mean, that's another question you could ask. Why are so many Christian contemplatives college educated? Mm-hmm. Where are the Christian contemplatives that only have a 10th grade education or, or, or stopped at high school? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the way Christianity is set up right now in America is that churches that cater to people that maybe don't have higher education tend to be more churches that we, we and again, kind of pejoratively, we dismiss them as fundamentalist, as having a very simplistic theology, those kinds of things. Whereas your, you know, your churches like the Episcopal Church or the Presbyterian Church, where there's a strong emphasis on, on graduate education for the clergy, they tend to cater to a more kind of educated, you know, but read socially privileged kind of community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and I think, you know, that the, the, the challenges we see between people who, you know, are Caucasian or, or persons of color, you can also then relate that to the contempt that people who are educated have towards people who aren't educated, you know, or the, um, you know, or the, or the lines of class that are still very real in our culture. And that, you know, people who don't have access to financial resources are often you know, shut out, you know, left, left outside the door. I just led a retreat in Scotland this summer. It was a wonderful experience. But, you know, I don't have the discretionary income to just fly to Scotland for a couple of weeks to go on a retreat. I'm glad there were enough other people out there who do that they were able to support me in getting there. But it, but it really was, you know, something that I had to give some thought to and recognize, you know, how many people are out there who would really be nurtured by that experience, but it's just not available to them, you know. Yeah. So, so contemplation, we, we, we have to be thinking about all these ways in which we set up, we set up, you know, barriers that separate people in, in our society and how we can learn to reach across those barriers and form community. It's a really important question. And one of the other barriers that I'm hyper aware of is language. Um, coming from an evangelical background, the, the stringing together of words in like a Christianese language that only makes sense to those inside a specific social club and, and sometimes not even to them. Um, do you find this happens in contemplative circles? And how do you combat the ambiguity of language and signal phrases like, pure prayer and sacred space? And is, is that avoidable at all? Well, um, you know, I think every tribe has its, has its language, its secret handshakes. So I don't know if it's fully avoidable. You know, I think that, that what um, any, any contemplative community needs to constantly be thinking about is how welcoming are we to people who are new to this? How willing are we to to really respond to their needs and their concerns? Are we, are we continually providing opportunities for newcomers, you know, to quote unquote, learn the secret handshake, to kind of learn, learn the systems? And, um, 
Yeah, it's 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 a very interesting question, and certainly a question that's true for Christianity as a whole. You know, as you mentioned, in the evangelical world, trust me, the Catholic world has it as well. Um, I I teach classes to people who are not Catholic and are thinking or interested in becoming Catholic, and this has been a wonderful learning experience for me. It's been a wonderful learning experience for me to um, to recognize that. You know, language that I've been using for 15 years or more now that is like second nature to me can still be very intimidating to somebody who's brand new. Even if they are coming, they they desire to learn more, they want to learn more, they're really eager to become part of the community, but they still have those hurdles to overcome. You know, and then uh, obviously then you start talking about differences between religious traditions. You know, how do we bring Christians and Buddhists together or Christians and Muslims or Christians and Jews? And, um, you know, and I think that, you know, one of the beautiful things about, about contemplation is that that's the doorway where people want to reach out. You know, I mean, the problem is, is when you have tribalism is that you have people on, on, on both sides of the divide who want nothing to do with the others. Mm-hmm. But at least contemplatives tend to be the ones who do play nice with others and who are interested in, you know, learning about, yeah, you know, learning about Buddhism, learning about Vedanta, learning about Sufism. So, you know, so then it just becomes this continual process of learning and recognizing, you know, I mean, even within Christianity, Cistercians and Jesuits use the word contemplation in very different ways. Mm. And so, um, so you have to recognize that for historical reasons, it's nobody's fault, nobody who's alive today at any rate. But, you know, that you have a culture that goes back in the Jesuit case, goes back, you know, 500 years, 450, 500 years. In the Cistercian case, goes back 900 years. So you have these cultural differences that we are now inheriting but those are differences in language, differences in, in nuance and in connotation. And so if we aren't conscious of that, we can talk past each other and nobody realizes it. Yeah. And so, you know, so it's something that that I think just just becomes really, really critical. And again, I think this is one of the gifts of silence, because at least for the 20 minutes everybody's silent. Nobody's miscommunicating with their language. Right. <laughs> but but the but the reality is is that we have to to communicate. I mean, God gave us the capacity for language. For so we, you know, we have to make do as best we can, and and that's, you know, any any religious community or spiritual community has to wrestle with questions of hospitality. And your 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 question is ultimately a question of hospitality. Mm-hmm. You know, how can you not be so attached to the jargon of your particular tribe? that you can be welcoming to newcomers and welcoming to visitors and welcoming to people whose who's, you know, who's center of gravity may be somewhere else, but for whatever reason, you know, your paths are crossing. How do we, how do we meet one another with, with dignity and with, with welcome? These are really important questions, you know, and not just for contemplative so that, you know, so that the Christian, the centering prayer people and the Buddhists can all play nice with one another. I mean, that's great. But these same questions then impact how do we deal with immigration? How do we deal with refugees? How do we deal with people who vote differently? Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it amazes me in our society how much contempt we have for people who vote differently from us. And I'm using the word we advisedly because I see it on both sides of the divide. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, and so I think that, that all of us have to 
have to begin, you know, asking that question, you know, why am I contemptuous of the person who in good conscience votes differently from me? Mm-hmm. Can't I find some way to be in conversation with that person? I think, you know, if, if, if there's a future for our, our society, we've all got to be asking that question and not just listening to the pundits who frankly are invested in keeping us, you know, kind of tribally, you know, in our little tribe of silos, because at least then they have they have a loyal a loyal fan base. Yeah, that's job security for them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. So, so we we've been all over, but I want to um, come back to because this is a, a podcast about um, you know prayer and meditation. Um, so, what is your favorite personal method of practice, and what drew you to it, and how does it affect you? Well, you know, I mentioned I'm 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 a center and prayer teacher, so I am I'm involved with contemplative outreach here in Atlanta, and um, I co-facilitate a centering prayer group, and I I lead introductory workshops in centering prayer, so that's really I guess my core practice, um, but I I do you know obviously when I teach centering prayer I you know I kind of follow the script pretty closely, but I also recognize that that when you look at the tradition as a whole there's really kind of a spectrum of these kind of Christian contemplative practices that go all the way back to the desert mothers and fathers. You know, and again, the desert mothers and fathers, they lived in, in Egypt. They were African. You know, mm-hmm. they, lived, they lived in Syria. They lived in Palestine. So these were, these were people of color who are the, you know, the, the headwaters of the Christian contemplative tradition. And, um, you know, and they, they gave us this, you know, this prayer that was based on finding a word or a phrase <coughs> or, or they, they gave us this tradition or this practice of finding a word or a phrase or a verse from scripture and using that as a focal point of your attentiveness so that you're not just pulled hither and yon by, you know, by the monkey mind or the wild horses within, within your consciousness. And so, you know, so centering prayer really kind of follows the cloud of unknowing, that medieval manuscript of saying you really just pick one word, you know, the shorter the better, to be a prayer word, to be a, a point of focus for your attentiveness. But you could really, I think it's, it's just, as, just as valid and just as useful to use a practice like the Jesus prayer out of the Orthodox tradition, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, and to entrain your breath to that, you know, or, or a favorite verse from Scripture. So, so I, you know, I approach it, where, you know, where the, where the actual sending prayer guidelines say choose a sacred word as a symbol of your intention to consent to God's presence and action within. I, I would be comfortable expanding that to saying choose a sacred word or phrase or, or, or verse from Scripture. So, um, so that makes me a little bit of a centering prayer heretic, but you know, <laughs> so be it. So, so is that what, uh, what practice you're going to lead us in today? Absolutely. So where can people keep up with you and your work? Well, uh, you mentioned the podcast encountering silence. It's, it's on all the major podcast channels, or you can go to encounteringsilence.com. Uh, my blog is um, I, it's, it's at Pathios, but it's also mirrored on my personal site, which is carlmccoman.com. And I have a new website, which is just new resources specifically for the study of Christian mysticism, the study and practice of Christian mysticism. And that's viamystica.com, V-I-A-M-Y-S-T-I-C-A. 
com. And if you go to carlmccullman.com, kind of my main website, you'll also find there not only information on my on my blog, on the podcast, but also on the books that I've written as well, as well as my my speaking calendar. So awesome. Well, I'll put all those links down below in the show notes and. Carl, I'm so glad we finally got to speak. I know it took us a couple tries to get it, but thank you for sharing your time with us today. Well, well, thank you for this podcast, for the work you're doing, and it, it was a privilege to have this conversation with you. God bless. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Being With on the Methods Podcast. If you appreciate what we're doing, please review us on iTunes, and you can go on and support us on patreon.com slash methods. Hit the next button in your podcast player to listen to a guided meditation by Carl McCullman.